Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. I'd like to thank you for joining us. Um, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Mayor Johnson. Mayor Johnson is offering a special. Um, they are the super source for special education resources and products, board maker. And um, you can save 20% by using Solution 20 when you go to their website, www.mayorjohnson.com. They are a treasure trove, so please go over and take a look. Um, today, I'm very excited. We're starting our series with the Child Mind Institute. We're going to be doing a five-part series. We did a series with them last year. And um, today we have Dr. Rachel Bussman. She's a clinical psychologist specializing in the evaluation and treatment of anxiety and mood disorders in children and adolescents. Uh, she has extensive experience providing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to children, teenagers, and also young adults. And uh, she has specific interests in expertise, very near and dear to my heart, obsessive compulsive disorder, separation anxiety, specific phobias, and selective mutism. So, um, you know, separation anxiety in children to some degree is normal. I mean, some have even said it's healthy and it shows intelligence and a healthy response to parental bonding. But what happens when the anxiety becomes overwhelming, when it becomes disabling and affects a child's functioning and quality of life? Um, today, we'll be discussing separation anxiety in children, and I'm going to throw in teens, too. And um, Dr. Bussman is going to tell us what's normal, what's not, and what to do. Dr. Bussman, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me as well. I think you did a great introduction because you, you spoke about something that's very important, which is separation anxiety is a really normal process. Uh, the development of separation anxiety is something that all infants go through, and as they sort of understand that people and objects exist even when they're not there, and it makes sense that, that babies and toddlers would be distressed when separated from their caregivers. Um, so that's very normal, and we see the development of stranger anxiety or anxiety about separation around seven to nine months. But for the most part, we see peaks of separation anxiety around 10 to 18 months, which usually goes away by the time kids are two or three. Um, and separation anxiety looks like a child or infant seeking out the parent. It might look like crying or clinging or just general distress about separation. And the good news, as you mentioned before, is that for, for most kids, this really doesn't last. The distress is not damaging. It's not permanent or, or dangerous in any way. It's completely normal for a toddler to cry when a babysitter comes, and it might even continue when the parent's leaving the driveway, as I'm sure many listeners could could identify with that experience. And then when the parent comes home, the sitter might say, oh, Susie did a great job. Actually, after you left, she wiped her tears away and calmed down, and we, you know, watched a little TV and had dinner and went to bed. So that process is really very normal and important for kids to go through. And so as far as what to help children with from the beginning, um, for me, is it's very important to set routines from the very beginning. I like to do things that I plan to continue with. So establishing early routines, even simple ones like saying hello and goodbye to your child and playing games like hide-and-seek, those are things that playfully but also really helpfully cement this idea that important figures are there and then they're not there and then they come back. Right. Um, right? And, and, you know, I know a lot of parents, well, let me just back up a little bit because, you know, this is, I Please. said this is near and dear to my heart because mm -hmm. um, my daughter wound up having a very severe anxiety mm. disorder. 
um, you know, we saw it from infancy, really. I mean, people right. couldn't, people she saw every day um, couldn't look her in the eye. Um, she would get mm-hmm. upset. And, you know, as she went through um, grammar school, um, transitioning was impossible. She was actually home um, home tutored for two and a half years. Right. Um, and she was able to get over it. But, you know, when, when you look back, when I look back, um, you know, it was so obvious um, as, as a child. So, you know, how early do you can you see this? And, um, you know, what's normal to see in a child? I mean, like you said, it's normal to see a child have a, have a problem when the parents leave. Right. Um, but what would be abnormal? And, you know, I also wanted, since you were mentioning the going out with the babysitting, mm. um, you know, should parents be sneaking out? Should they be saying goodbye? What's the best mm-hmm. approach? I'm so glad you asked these questions. So uh, um, as far as what's normal in a younger child, let's, let's take preschool, for example, and I like to use examples because I think we can all relate to them. Um, in preschool, let's say for a threes program or a fours program, it is completely normal for a child to have some distress when the parent leaves, even for a couple of days, and it might even last for a couple of weeks. And and a lot of preschool programs do a lot of um, great interventions in this way where they'll have the parents stay for the first, let's say, week or so in another room because they want to get the kids accustomed to the routine. So it is normal for a child to have some protests or be a little upset. I knew one child who wore his coat for the first week or two of school just because that was his, um, what we might call a transitional object or sort of way of staying connected to to home. Um, and so all those things are pretty normal. I think what what becomes not normal is when this distress persists and when it becomes interfering um, and is really impacting a child in a significant way. So when we talk about separation anxiety disorder, that's a diagnosable condition, and we're really talking about that in slightly older children. So we're looking at that usually emerges around four to five years of age, which isn't to say that you might not see signs of it earlier, but it is definitely completely normal for children of varying ages to have difficulty upon transitions to school, coming back from a vacation, meeting a new babysitter. That's all normal. I think it's when it persists, it's significantly interfering. That's when we we look at it as a problem. To your second question, I love that question about should we sneak out as a, when we leave our child with a babysitter. And my my clinical opinion is no, we should not sneak out. Um, even from a very young age, um, it's it's really important to tell your kids that you're leaving and you're coming back. And I think when we set that from the very beginning, even when we think the child doesn't understand it, I think it's it's setting a pattern that it's normal for mom and dad to leave, and it's totally normal for them to come back. I don't advise making a huge production out of leaving. Um, because I think that goes the other way. I've seen some parents where they have a lot of anxiety about leaving themselves and because they think their child's going to get distressed. So the leaving process becomes very long and drawn out, and maybe there's a watch out the window, and then we'll come back in the door and say another goodbye, and that, I think, is also not good. But a simple goodbye, you know, here's, here's Samantha, your babysitter. You remember her. You guys really like to do, you know, trains or I have a special pizza for you guys to eat, and then you can do trains. We'll see, mommy and daddy. will see you later. Have fun. Out the door. Is, right, because the transferring usually, of anxiety is really, really important, especially yes. for first-time parents or a absolutely. parent dealing with a difficult child like this. You know, it yes, really is hard. Absolutely. And you know, physical symptoms. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of children. I, I speak with thousands of parents who, and I'm sure as you do, who have children with with anxiety disorders. Yes. 
And, you know, it really does become, they do manifest physical symptoms, and they're not just faking sick. They physically are sick. And I think that's where a little bit of the confusion comes in um, with whether where the the line is drawn between Mm -hmm. what is, you know, a very anxious child to a child that has a separation anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So if if we're going to be talking about a separation anxiety disorder, what would you look for? What would be tips for a parent? Mm-hmm. Yes, that this is that this isn't question. just um, that this isn't just you know anxiety. Absolutely. Well, I think to clarify, I mean, separation anxiety disorder is one of several diagnosable anxiety disorders. So, social anxiety is is another condition. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is another anxiety disorder. Separation anxiety disorder is characterized by a child having extreme overattachment to a parent and a persistent difficulty to to separate or such extreme distress upon even the idea of separation. So while a child with some normal anxiety about leaving, a parent leaving might say, you know, when are you going to be back? I really don't go. And that would be normal. The child who has, you know, more of a diagnosable condition might be asking about it the night before is showing what you just referred to, not only um, some anxiety about it, but is showing other signs and symptoms, like worrying about what might happen to the parent. Are you going to die? Are you going to get hurt? Are you going to come back? What if I get sick? Um, These physical manifestations, which I'm so glad that you said, are very real, because they are very real. A child might wake up in the morning and say, I have a headache, I have a stomachache, I I don't want to go to school. That's not fake. I mean, at least when we're talking about separation anxiety disorder, it is very real. And I see kids all the time where they truly are having all of these physical manifestations of anxiety. Adults have physical manifestations of anxiety, too, when they have anxiety, um, a panic attack or or concerns such as that. So I think it is true that some of the symptoms of separation anxiety disorder include physical complaints. And barring that the child actually has a physical problem, let's say if the child has the flu and that's why they're saying they have a stomachache, that's one thing. But when we have kids complaining all the time of sort of these vague or changing body kind of concerns, then we're probably looking at maybe more of an anxiety presentation. Right. And, you know, also I think it's it's so important with any of, you know, these kids um, with neurobiological issues or mental health issues mm-hmm. um, that you try to find underlying um, causes. And, you know, obviously a child that may be impacted by a trauma, you know, a loss or divorce um, would tend to be more clingy and more anxious, which is mm-hmm. not saying that they can't also have the um, anxiety disorder. And, you know, I, I have a couple of twofold questions, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, would a child having um, separation anxiety disorder be more predisposed to having a social anxiety disorder and OCD? Because I sort of see them blending. And, um, you know, then I wanted to talk about um, situational, um, where, you know, parents need to be detectives. Where is it only in a certain, you know, going mm. to school? Is it mm-hmm. only going to a certain place? Um, you know, where sensory issues or other things could come in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so is, are children more predisposed to other anxiety disorders, and how does a parent start to unravel what's happening? Another really great question. I think that um, we, we do see what's called comorbidity. Um, sometimes we see um, anxiety disorders or a mood disorder such as depression occurring by itself. 
meaning that's the only concern that's happening at the time. But there are some some condition there are some times rather where a child might have separation anxiety disorder and something else. Um, they might have social anxiety as well. Um, they might have depression as well. Um, and so it's not uncommon to see things occur together. Um, and to see a child with a vulnerability in one area and have another vulnerability in another area. And your idea of being a detective, I think, is is really important because um, when parents are calling us, they're calling because usually the problems are persisting and interfering and really causing significant problems. And so we want to help families be good detectives, and the way we do that is by doing really good comprehensive assessments that really look to tease apart what is going on, what do we think is the reason why, for example, a child is not going to school. So school refusal or difficulty going to school often is part of separation anxiety, or you see that in separation anxiety, but children may not go to school because they have a specific fear, let's say, of test-taking situations. Or they might have very severe social anxiety, which would be related to talking in front of the class, talking to other people. And so to make an assumption would be we wouldn't want to, to jump to a conclusion, why is the child not going to school, for example. And so that's where being a detective is important, and that's why parents, we hope, reach out to support networks and to clinicians to get more information when they realize, you know what, this isn't just a little bit of anxiety in a new situation, or this isn't just going away. This actually really seems to be getting worse. Um, and separation anxiety specifically doesn't only manifest itself in school, which I think is sort of the classic way of thinking about it with a child. Absolutely. You know, right. six or seven or even ten clinging to their parent and needing to be peeled off them for school. That absolutely does happen. But I have also treated many kids with separation anxiety disorder who do go to school. They might have difficulty going to school, but actually do pretty well with the transition to school, but can't sleep alone, won't play in a room without the parent being in the same room, or won't go to different floors of the house. You know, wouldn't this would be the child who would definitely not go upstairs to change into pajamas and come back. And I think those are some of the things that people know less about. So I don't think we can just say, Oh, he's going to school. He can't have separation anxiety disorder because that's false, right? So right. And vice versa. I'm and so glad you versa. said that. Right. Exactly, exactly. And that's why reaching out for um, support such as, you know, this podcast and also having a really good resource of clinicians who are experts in this area to really help parents understand what's what's happening. Is it developmentally appropriate? Is it not? And and how Because we have really good effective treatments for anxiety. Absolutely, you know, and that's what we're going to start going into now. Um, Great. You know, I know my my daughter. Um, you know, hers basically was school, and then it it, it mm -hmm. sort of um, went. It spread out into she couldn't even go to um, a mall, and mm -hmm. we couldn't figure out why because she was so young. And then we, you know, taking our detective's cap, we found that it was, mm -hmm. she was afraid of. She had a phobia of escalators. Um, right. And we did a very age appropriate. Um, um, exposure and response, and this was mm -hmm. 15 years ago, where we would drive to the mall, sit outside, and look at the escalator. And yeah. then a few days later, we went in and we sat a few, you know, and little by little, I'd say over a two-week period, 
she wound up getting on the escalator. Mm-hmm. But had we not figured out it was the escalator, um, right. you know, it, it would have been very, you know, problematic. And the same thing for school. You know, you need to mm-hmm. find differentiated education for some of these kids. Um, Correct. Because, you know, it could be overwhelming, the lights, the kids, the noise, you know, if they have right. sensory issues. But I like that you're talking about the treatments because you mm-hmm. do cognitive behavioral therapy. Correct. And what I am really stressing with parents is that talk therapy is really nice, but talk therapy does not give children tools. And without tools, what I find that when these kids go in and talk about their fears, anxieties, phobias, and aren't given a tool to deal with it, it can actually increase the anxiety. So mm-hmm. why That's don't you actually explain- very true. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've lived it, so you yeah, know, I know I made you that mistake. Yeah, you, you become an expert in your own way. I mean, we do, I mean, I love what you said that, you know, talking is very important, but the, the key piece that's missing or the special sauce, so to speak, is the the actual giving the child tools and what you were talking about before with your daughter, exposure. So what, it, just to kind of summarize what I do, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is really a, a framework of therapy where we help people understand how their thoughts and their feelings and behaviors are related. So just to build off your elevator or escalator example, which I think is a good one. Let's say there's a fee, a thought, I'm going to fall off the escalator or I'm going to get sucked down into the steps. That's certainly not going to lead to a very happy feeling, fun feeling, optimistic feeling. It's probably going to lead to dread, anxi- you know, anxiety, fear. And behaviorally, what we tend to do, I know I tend to avoid things I don't like, and I, I'm sure most people do, is we avoid the thing we're afraid of which actually makes sense because who wouldn't want to stay away from something that they're terrified of? But the problem is that over time that staying away or avoidance gets very sort of stamped in. It gets very reinforced so that it becomes harder and harder to face that escalator. So what, what a lot of what I do is helping, one, give brain tools. So I talk to kids a lot about how their brains sometimes trick them Brains are amazing things, and they but they sometimes trick you into believing things that actually aren't true or believe things that are so unlikely to happen, but your brain is telling you it's going to happen. So could you fall off an escalator? Sure. Not very likely. Could you get sucked down into a step? Perhaps, but I would say I would bet nine, you know, 9 million times no. And so we help kids think about their thoughts differently. And then we help kids face fearful situations. And so to go right to the escalator first day would be really hard. And so what you said I love, I, we sat outside and we, we maybe we talked about the escalator. Then we went a little closer and we looked at the escalator. And that idea behind exposure is helping people to see that they can face the thing they're really afraid of and not escape, not avoid, not do anything else except be in that situation And the funny thing about anxiety is it actually will go down on its own. And it needs to be repeated and practiced. And so that escalator example is a great example that you gave, but it can be applied to dogs. It can be applied to to separation. So in in a situation with a child with separation anxiety, we might start in in a room with the parent playing with the child in the room and either going out of the room for just 10 seconds and coming back or maybe sitting at the door while the child's playing. And then gradually moving further and further away. Or can you go upstairs and just get your socks and come right back downstairs? Wow, that was a great job doing that. That was really brave. Now let's try 
for a few more minutes, a few more minutes, and a few more minutes. And so, unfortunately, parents, I, I mean, I think parents are doing the best they can, and I'm a parent, so I know I do the, the same thing. We don't want to see our child in distress. And so if they're upset, we want to comfort them. But when we accommodate their behavior, when we accommodate by, let's say, saying, no, 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 don't worry, you don't have to ever take an escalator again, or you don't have to be alone, I'll lay right here with you. Right. We unfortunately, we give them a child the message that they can't cope on their own, right. when in and fact you know, they can. Exactly, but it's, it's just a matter that we, they have to be given the tools. And, you know, Correct. I know I just want to preface, you know, what I said about the exposure and response, mm-hmm. and I just want, um, you know, parents to know and for you to explain that it's not throwing a child to the wolves. Um, no. Really pushing a kid too far, it really would backfire. It's my understanding and the way I was taught to do it was that you're really desensitizing by giving them a slight bit of discomfort at a time. You're Correct. not over- I think that's overwhelming. An excellent, an excellent way of saying it. I mean, and... You know, I think when parents have the right tools, they can they can coach their child in a lot of these situations. The treatment that we do here at Child Mind Institute is is not only doing a lot of this exposure work with the ch- ch- the children, sorry, but also providing a lot of parent support and education to transfer those skills right to the parent. But you're right, putting a child right on the escalator, or sending them into school, or throwing them to the wolves, as you said, is not something that we do. Um, we, we take a more gradual approach because we want kids to feel successful at each sort of tier of where they're at. We build what's called a fear hierarchy when we face fears, and, you know, we start with lower rungs until we get a sense of mastery, and then we move on to the next thing. I love it. The achievable goals, I mean, that's the only Absolutely. way they get there. Um, you know, but, but I think a lot of the thing, uh, something the parents really run into um, that's a problem is that they allow outside influence to affect them. They're embarrassed, they're annoyed, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they have to get to work. I mean, you know, I get it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, really instead they have to have compass- compassion. And it's so important for parents to understand the limbic system and the physical mm-hmm. changes that happen in these kids' bodies. Um, so, you know, that I just hope any listeners, you know, really yeah. is worth you know, check out the limbic system so that you really mm-hmm. um, understand what's going on. But, you know, what would you say to parents that are going through this, that they have a child that won't go to school and the district mm-hmm. is fighting with them? They have a child that won't go to grandma's house and the grandma's yelling. You know, how how could a parent deal with this? It's, it's, such a complex, it's such a complex and layered question, and I think it goes to a lot of things. One is that while more than 15 million children have a psychiatric or learning disorder, we still see stigma and, and secrecy around us. And so I think one of the larger issues is to really um, reduce stigma and shame associated with mental illness and show how treatable and real it is. So that's one piece, and I think providing parents support um, is is important. And I think for parents, when we do an assessment, we really want to get a really good overall picture of what is happening, give it a diagnosis, give it a name, help parents understand what it is, and then give them the tools to feel successful. And so I know it's hard when grandma has a suggestion or school is pushing back, and I think um, as, as a treatment provider, I just find myself really trying to align with the parents' concerns and their own anxieties and letting them know that their concerns are real and that part of the process is helping other people in the child's life understand how they can be helpful and how they might not be helpful. So a lot of the work we do at Child Mind is working with schools um, to provide education and support, whether it means the individual therapist is contacting 
the school, we offer lots of educational workshops and trainings for, for teachers. And sometimes if it means bringing grandma in and, and including her, if she's a big part of the child's life, that's important. And also I think providing parents with the understanding that they're not alone and that many other children struggle with things like anxiety and fears. And when the parents have more knowledge and know the treatments that are that are evidence-based and know that what they're doing is helping, then they can, I think, feel more confident in providing information to other family members and saying, you know, I understand you really want to help, but this is what we're working on in our family and this is what we need you to do. Mm-hmm. And it's also a matter of self-esteem because, you know, when parents um, unintentionally minimize or belittle, um, mm-hmm. you know, what the child is going through, it really can affect their self-esteem. Sure. Um, you know, I just just before we um, wrap up the interview, I just wanted to, to go into asking your opinion. I mean, I am not a first-line approach for medication. I am mm-hmm. a believer that medication is absolutely necessary for some children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point... Um, would you say that a medication might be warranted for a child? And mm-hmm. and before I say that, just medication doesn't work without CBT and CBT, you know. So, right, and um, I think you, you're you're asking really great questions, and so I'm giving my opinion as a psychologist, obviously not mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, but I work very closely with them. And I think um, we give a pretty clear message to families that we know that cognitive behavioral therapy um, is evidence-based and and indicated for a lot of anxiety disorders and mood disorders and a lot of diagnosed conditions. And in mild and and moderate cases, that can be all that's needed. But I think when we see either a presentation for a child that is in such severe distress, is struggling so much, whether they're engaging in some high-risk behaviors, like possibly even feeling suicidal or worthless, or if a child has been in cognitive behavioral therapy to the best of their ability and hasn't had an adequate response to treatment, those are really the times that we're looking to do combined treatment, meaning combined medication and cognitive behavioral therapy. And that that in, in these cases of more moderate and severe presentations of anxiety and even mood disorders, that's really the recommended treatment would be to take a combined approach. And so when I work with families, and I will certainly level with them and say, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I want to hear all your questions, and they do too. And sometimes families have some, some, they all of their concerns are valid, but sometimes there are some myths about medication that I like to have cleared up so that they can have an informed, um, so they can make a very informed decision. Because we we do not want children to suffer any more than they have to. Their Their job is to be a kid and have fun and go to school and make friends. And when kids can't do their job of those things, we get concerned. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much. And, you know, thank you. I am a huge, huge advocate for cognitive behavioral therapy. It is your first line uh, treatment for, for any child with an anxiety disorder, fears, phobias. So, um, you know, and Child Mind Institute, you know how I feel about that. So tell us where um, a parent could reach you. Wonderful. Yes, we have a, a wonderful website. We're at childmind.org, and so we have a lot of resources right on our website. Links to live um, or links to video clips, links to events that are upcoming. We have a, a, a very big event upcoming in May, which is Speak Up for Kids, mm-hmm. which we have a, a full month of um, a campaign of speakers and events, and it's going to be a really excellent opportunity for parents to get support and come to some events here at Child Mind, or or um, they'll be tune in. We'll have a live um, streaming 
channel that will play the entire month of May. So it'll be a really wonderful opportunity. But childmind.org is where families can go and, and explore the portals and, and find a lot of resources. And your blogs are just unbelievable. Thank you so much. Oh, I mean, it, it really, I mean, if you have a parent with any type of mental illness, mm-hmm. um, if it, just just go on the blog, and uh, Dr. Busman has a fantastic, fantastic resources for you. So thank, thank you for you joining so me. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it Well, as well. I hope we get to do it again sometime soon. Oh, definitely. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent here on The Coffee Clatch. Go to our website, www.thecoffeeclatch.com. You can listen to any show in archive, and I offer all of the interviews free to download on iTunes, so you can take us to the gym, go for a walk, and um, I appreciate it. We'll see you Wednesday with Bright Not Broken. Have a great night, everyone.